Welcome to Amplified, a podcast featuring conversations with prominent diverse voices in sports and sports media. I'm your host, Megan Reyes, and making sports a more equal and inclusive space is a personal passion of mine. If you're also in the sports media industry, or if you're a fan, you probably already know a little bit about my guests, what they do on the job, and how they got their start. So I'm skipping the superficial questions. Instead, I want to learn about their upbringings, how they've managed mental health and the idea of belonging, and their identity outside of the industry. On this episode, we're joined by Camille Buxeda, creator of W Slam and an instrumental figure in growing women's basketball. Her and I share a meaningful conversation about perfectionism and the struggles of wanting to assimilate when you feel different. Let's get Camille's story amplified. Camille, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I know this has been a couple of weeks in the war- in the making, so excited to be here. Yes. So what was it in March? You and I did a clubhouse room together around women in sports Mm -hmm. and you had so much to share, so many good (laughs) insights about self-care, especially working in sports. So when I started ideating this podcast, you were one of the first people I thought of. So very excited. Hopefully we can share some gems for our listeners. Um, So as I've mentioned before, this show isn't necessarily a lot about you know, your career in the industry, while that's important, it's more of a backdrop. But just to start, why don't you tell us how you got to W Slam and what some of your goals are for the vertical? Yeah. um, So my story is very non-traditional at all when it comes to sports, even though I feel like everyone's, you know, career is pretty, path pretty is is non-traditional in sports. Um, I was pre-med for three years. I was, you know, I'm going to go be a doctor, work in in neurology uh, at Florida State. Um, about the middle of my junior year, I decided I had been working with the athletic department more on an extracurricular basis um, in different capacities. And I decided, you know, that, that medicine isn't for me. Sports is really my passion. It's what I want to do. Um, unfortunately, it was a little late <laughs> to make that decision. So I ended up getting a psychology degree, which crazy enough, I actually really considered going to study psychology further because I loved it so much. Um, but I had the opportunity to apply to NYU's graduate program for their sports business school. I got in, I did my two years there of my grad program. And while I was there, I interned at MSG for the Liberty and the Knicks. Uh, I mean, I took a, a crazy amount of freelance jobs, like a lot of them unpaid. People don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> I went through it. Um, yeah. And so uh, right when I went to go graduate from my master's program, I had applied to a content position at the NBA, um, specifically under the WNBA. And they called me up. They they had me come in as a contract role. I did that for about a year. And then I was about to sign my second contract and Slam found me and they were really looking for someone to start their their women's vertical. Um, and they really the, the original plan was for this to just serve as some as a as a social outlet, you know, is to, you know, be an, an extension of the coverage that we do on women in women's basketball. Um, and it's kind of turned into something holistically different. Um, and it's now really building itself as a brand. So, yeah, my story was pretty unexpected in the way that I ended up at WSLAM um, and starting it in 2019. But it's definitely something I'm so blessed and grateful to have been a part of. And and I'm glad that the journey went the way it did, because I think um, it makes me so much more grateful now to see the position I'm in um, after going through a lot of the hard years that I know a lot of the people in this in the sports industry have gone through. 
Yeah. And it's so cool to see the things you're doing at W Slam. I got like I tagged you in the other day. I got my new uh, issue. Seeing the things you produce and all the creativity that you get to put behind it is very exciting. So pre-med, is there a reason neurology? You mentioned neurology. You mentioned psychology. Is there an interest there in just how the mind works? So my grandfather on my mom's side, um, he was a radiologist. He went to Harvard Medical School, um, one of the first, I believe, in, in our family to leave Puerto Rico and and go to university in the States. And he was a big inspiration for me. I loved medicine and science from day one. Math and science were my my subjects. It's weird. I was the most uncreative kid and I ended up in the most creative role. I don't know how, but um, yeah, I loved really understanding how the mind works and how uh, it kind of transfers from the psychological standpoint all the way to the physical standpoint, which is neurology and really um, dissecting the different parts of the brain and how it controls one's body. Um, I was just really fascinated by it. So I did a couple shadowing um, experiences a couple summers in at a one of the neurology centers in Orlando. And I loved it so much. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to try and do this for real. And while it didn't end up working out, I loved the psychology stuff I did because I was able to do a lot of research while I was at um, at school and really get to quantify all these practices that you learn about in textbooks um, and get to uh, really study them. And a lot of what I did was on human relationships, which we all, no matter what we end up in, are, you know, working around and, and, and you know, moving through. So uh, I worked within marriages um, and then in um, social relationships. So between friends or, or students. So, yeah, it was really, really exciting. And I got to, you know, work with some of the Ph.D. students um, and see what they're doing. I mean, can't imagine getting my Ph.D., but um, I really enjoyed that experience for sure, because it, it really is it's a cool way to to think about relationships when we don't really think about it and when we're in them ourselves. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to dive into this because I have a <laughs> lot of questions. Uh, we do, you know, so much of the show is focused on mental health yeah. and also just understanding oneself and the brain. So now that I know this, we are definitely coming <laughs> back to this. Um just going off a quick tangent on, on work. So you do wear a lot of different professional hats at SLAM. You do a lot of different things in your role. How do you create time for yourself to prioritize self-care? And how do you separate your sense of self from work? The sense of self from work, I'll start with the latter real quick. I don't think I've fully gotten yet, if I'm completely honest. Um, <laughs> I think it's something that I've really struggled with since taking this job specifically because you are known as the face of something or the, the the person and then I I will I would get really in my own head of like well people think I'm a fraud you know I I haven't been doing high school basketball since I was in high school myself like there was a, a big mental block or, or wall that I had to push through myself because um, and my, and I have really great people around me that really remind me, but you know, I'm in this position for a reason and I have to trust my abilities and who I am and where I've gotten to and why I'm in that position that I'm in. And so, um, that is where I, uh, kind of started finding my peace with it. And in terms of, you know, it's wild. The, the sense of self thing really didn't start happening. I would say until the last six months when I really just started, you know, 
separating my life from W slam. And I think I had to do that. And I don't think I would have been able to do it without the pandemic because I was on the road all the time, always at shoots and really in into the mix of things. I wasn't thinking about all those other stress points for me. Um, and so it's definitely something I've taken a priority on. And this kind of leads me to the next part in terms of self-care. I, I shut it off. I'm and I, I'm very blessed to have a company that really allows me and, and encourages me to do that because they also know the life of working in social media or the life of working in something in, like in sports where it's 24 seven. Um, and I really I, I have a knack of, I you know, if it's I don't care if there's games, I don't care if there's a shoot like if I need and I'm at that point where I need that time, I take that time and I shut it off and I. I'll even sometimes log off from all the accounts on my phone. I won't even have like a, a, a trailing of, of, of it because I need that separation to be able to work more efficiently on the on the days that I do. Um, so I, I have a really big um, divide, that a personal divide that I um, try to, I would say, uh, designate for myself when there are times that I know that I need that break. Um, yeah. and there are some times when I can keep it going and, and that's okay, but I, I definitely need to know and, and recognize when it's time to shut it off. And so that's one thing that I've been really working on and it's have been helping me so much because, um, it, it's genuinely during this pandemic, as, as everyone knows, we've been working 24 seven for, you know, over a year and a half. So, yep. um, it's been really helpful to find that media, that happy medium and, and know myself a little bit better. And, and think about these things a little bit more so that now I can go back into the real world swing of things um, with that knowledge and apply it uh, so that I can live a happier life myself. Cause that's in the end. And if there's anyone, I'm sure everyone listening has like learned this, but the pandemic has taught us all that nothing matters more than living your life and living your happiness um, and not living to work. I love my job. I love my job, but I don't want to live to work. I want to work to live and, and um, really appreciate and spend that time with the people people that I love around me. I love that so much. I think also for myself, if there's anything the pandemic has taught me is that I am a lot more high functioning than I realized for better or for worse, where when we were in a more normal setting, you were able to um, turn off certain parts of your life, whether it's work and being at home, working from home, being on 24 seven, I realized I am a lot more high functioning. And I talked to my therapist about this sometimes where you don't realize it until those moments where you think I do need to turn off because I'm used to go, go, go. And now I'm realizing like it's starting to become detrimental to my mental. So it's so important to log off. And I think anyone that works in social can agree. Sometimes you have to delete the apps. And that is the best advice I could probably give someone. A hundred percent. Delete them, archive them, even like sign out. Yeah. (laughs) It's as much as deactivating your account. I've done that a couple of times and really like just done it and gone off the grid for, you know, at least a week. Sometimes Mm -hmm. even that's enough because we forget that when our part, like, Social media, it was always intended to be a, a, a fun use for us. And when it becomes work, it takes away of that fun. And not only that, but almost adds a stressor. And I think like everyone knows in social, you find yourself comparing yourself to all your competitors or other people out there or other figures. And and that really takes a toll on one's mental health. And not only that, it takes a toll on the creative energy. It takes a toll on your efficiency to work better. Um, and it's just really negative. So when you find yourself in those times, it's, you know, deleting the apps, deactivating whatever it is for you, like it's definitely beneficial to do. Yes, I 100% agree. Um, so switching gears a little bit, uh, I I know you were born in Puerto Rico. Is that correct? Yes, you were I was. born in Puerto Rico. When did you move here? 
Um, I moved to the States when I was about six or seven. Um, and I moved to Florida. So my dad's side of the family, my parents split up when I was about three. Um, and my dad stayed in Puerto Rico. So my dad still lives there. My whole dad's side of the family is still there. Um, so I have a nice place to vacation. Um, <laughs> and it's pretty funny because I, uh, a lot of people actually recently, I was with some friends and my mom called me. She's the only, my mom, my dad, and my grandma are the only people that speak Spanish to me in my life really consistently. And they're the only people I speak Spanish to. And a lot of my friends have just never heard me. And I don't have an accent because I went to an American school in Puerto Rico since I was in school. So English, while Spanish was my first language, English was right there with it. Um, and they heard me speaking Spanish and they're like, wait, what? I'm like, I'm Puerto Rican. <laughs> no, I'm not from here. <laughs> um, so it's pretty wild. But yeah, me, I, I moved to the States, to Florida with my mom and my grandma. So on my mom's side of the family. So that's kind of who I was with there. And I, you know, still go back to Puerto Rico to visit my dad's side a lot. That's awesome. Do you have any early memories of what it was like moving from Puerto Rico, like trying to assimilate to American life? Yeah, I mean, I think here's the thing with Puerto Rico is... And I'm actually reading a book on the true history of Puerto Rico right now because I, I don't know if a lot of people know, listening, it, it is a very tortured history that that island has. Really being the ugly stepsister of whatever country decided to colonize it, you know, first being Spain um, and then America for, I would say, I think it's military purposes um, and its location near the uh, near Central America. Um, and then obviously what it does with sugarcane. So there's a really tortured history behind it. Um, and so all that to say that when America took it over, they wanted to Americanize Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico lives in this strange middle ground of partially Americanized part, like we're Spanish to our core, but like we live in this strange in between. Um, so the shift wasn't that major for me from like, what day-to-day -day life was like. Um, the, the biggest memories I think that I realized growing up, and I had this conversation with Ari Chambers pretty recently actually, was I, I despised being Spanish almost growing up, like almost my entire life. <laughs> I, I hated being different. I hated when my mom spoke Spanish to me. Um, as a lot of people know, especially in the South, um, you are either, uh, you're assimilating or you're not with us. And so there is a, a big struggle that I, I suffered through, um, during that when I was growing up. Um, so a lot of what I would say my later life is, is now appreciating where I'm from and my history and my ancestry and my heritage, um, because it's such a beautiful thing to be from a unique place and where I'm from is such a beautiful place with such a great mentality and a way of life. Um, but I really do remember those, those struggles of, of wanting to fit in and, and not liking where I was from. And it's weirdly, uh, I played a big part, I think, in who I am today. Cause I still try to jump those boundaries a lot when I think about my psychological, I don't want to say trauma because that's a little excessive, but my psychological, you know, what I, I went through growing up, like we all have those, those, um, or what is it? Issues that are still with us. And so, mm -hmm. um, definitely something that I think now I think about a lot more than I ever did growing up. Thank you so much for sharing that. As my um, therapist would say, everyone has traumas. Yes. Big T, little T. I would, <laughs> however you want to label it, it, it can be a little T, that's okay. But no, I think it is a very important part of your upbringing. And if I can ask, like, at what point in your life did you, did that shift happen where you really started to appreciate and embrace your Puerto Rican heritage? I, I probably, I would say maybe in the last like six or seven years. It's very, very recent. Um, I mean, even when I left high school, I wasn't. 
Um, and I also, a, a quick background, I was unfortunately way too short to be a basketball player. I was 4'11 going into my freshman year of high school. It just was not happening for me. Um, so I was a gymnast my whole life. And a, a predominantly white sport, uh, especially when I was growing up in suburban Florida. So uh, I think it was, you know, not only was I seeing it in our school system or the kids I was around, but I was also seeing it in the gym. I think I had one black teammate and one other Hispanic teammate. And I think that was the, the root of our of our entire diversity on the team. Um, and so that's definitely something that I think like now I, I look back on it and I recognize it a lot more. But I think when, when I graduated college and when I moved to New York and I started realizing that there's a life outside of what I experienced growing up is when I really started appreciating who I am and where I'm from. I can relate to that so much. I grew up in Idaho, so mm -hmm. I grew up in like a very non-diverse state, a whole state. Oh, man. Um, I was probably a people kind of, you know, will jokingly say like, are there other Filipinos there? Not really. There aren't many of us. I get asked all the time. I think there was maybe a few other black kids in high school. But yeah, it is tough. Like you do want to assimilate a lot to that suburban culture that you were raised in. And I'm, I feel similar that when I graduated, I moved to Oregon, I saw a little bit more diversity. But it was when I came to the Bay Area, especially where there is such a strong Filipino culture is when I really embraced like, oh, this isn't just me. These little quirks that I thought were just unique to me are actually just true to Filipino culture. And I just didn't know that because I wasn't around a lot of other people like myself growing up and my family is all scattered, scattered. So we weren't, you know, um, kind of like tribal for me to realize that these things aren't just unique to me. They're unique to my heritage. Um, and so, yeah, I think I can relate to that. Um, I moved to the Bay Area seven years ago, and that's when I also started really embracing my true Filipino roots. It is crazy how we how we internalize a lot of those. It's not like distaste or like it's almost a little bit not like ashamed. I don't know how to explain it. It's just one of those things where you didn't want to associate yourself with it. And that's it's strange how we internalize so much of that. And now that we're older, we're really recognizing it. Um, and it's wild to see because I think the other big thing that kids are seeing, especially like if it was me and I'm, I don't know, 12, 13 now growing up, I have TikTok, I have Instagram, I have uh, app applications that allow me to see that the other rest of the world that are people like me. And I think even now I appreciate it so much, which is crazy to be a 27 year old and laughing at Puerto Rican moms always like, like this memes on TikTok or whatever videos. Um, but I appreciate it so much because it, it brings some level of connectivity that I think um, we we all miss or miss or, or not just really don't have if you're not, you know, growing up where you are from. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, a lot of uh, the I see a lot of really good Filipino mom TikToks. Also, yes, and my parents, <laughs> and, uh, we live for them. So Love I can it. relate. Um, so coming back to mental health a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, you and I are both pretty vocal about this. So for myself, when I was 22, when I graduated college, that's when I realized I had anxiety. Yep. To be quite honest, I probably had it my whole life. Again, it kind of comes back to that high functioning when you're in high school. You know, I'm, I'm in class all day. I come home and I, I do homework. Similar to yourself, I did do gymnastics. Then I switched to ballet. Mm -hmm. So I was in, you know, in studio for hours a day, come home, study, do it all over again. When you graduate college and now you're in an adult life and you don't have as many extracurriculars to keep you busy, that's when I think I started to realize I'm an anxious person. So um, 
I know you've been transparent about your experience as well. Is there anything that you are willing to share as far as what that looked like for you and how you to this day still manage your anxiety? Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, everything you just said is so true to to myself as well. I mean, since I was seven or six years old, once I moved to the States, really, I would get up, go to school, get myself to practice, be home at 9 p.m., eat dinner, do homework, go to sleep. There really was no time to even think about all the things that are going on, the inner workings of our brains. And then in even college, you're in such a stimulated environment where you're not thinking about these things as much. And it really struck, it really hit me when I moved to New York and um, I'm, I'm feeling all these things, you know, being on my own. I think like, like you mentioned, we're really high functioning, but um, I swear it really took this pandemic for me to realize how bad my anxiety is and how crippling it is. Um, I experienced my first panic attacks about three or four years ago. I'd never had them. I, I so I didn't know what they were. Um, and I, I, I kind of like, it was really subtle at first. So it was very manageable. Um, but I think about three and a half years ago now, um, it was out of nowhere. And I think everyone knows panic attacks hit, people differently. But for, for me, it's really out of the blue or about a week after a very stressful period. It's so delayed. I don't, I don't know why. Um, but I had a really bad one and I sent myself to the hospital cause I didn't know what to do. I just, I, I didn't know what it was. You think it's a heart issue. You're convincing yourself. It's a heart issue. It's that impending doom feeling. And it's strange because being a psychology major, like I know all these things, my rational self knows all these things, but you know, anxiety is, is just a whole nother beast in itself. And so, um, that's about the time I really recognized it was an issue. Um, and then I, again, like high functioning as we are, I continued working and just kind of trucking along after that situation. Um, and then about the midway through the pandemic is when I first started therapy, and that's when I really started getting to the core of, of a lot of where my issues come from, because I think I'm the type of person where I when I understand it for, like to its core, it almost helps me have peace with it. Um, and so that was why that was so big for me. But I think it I didn't allow myself to get that help that I think I needed because it's like I didn't have time or it's like, I'll be fine. I'll get through it, you know. Um, and in this pandemic, when you're alone 24 seven or, you know, just not, not doing anything, you're not thinking about anything beyond work or, or being at home, you realize that uh, your brain, you know, has gone through some stuff. And so it's definitely something that um, I still deal with today. I, I found the practices that work for me. Um, and that's been really huge. And luckily to say, I haven't had a panic attack in over a year and a half. So just... Yeah, it is trucking along. So uh, thankful for that. But know that it's not a linear path to healing. It's very, um, it's very fluid and always moving. So just trying to make sure that I don't, it sounds weird, like you don't want to get too comfortable with your growth or your mental health, because then you could set yourself up for failure. So it's really knowing when to designate those times to work on it. Um, and that's something that, again, like I mentioned, it's just fluid. It's from time to time, you figure it out as you go. <laughs> yeah, that is so important to remember that it is not linear. Mm -hmm. I tell people this all the time. And then sometimes I fail to remember that myself. Yeah. Um, when I have moments, I'll have like, a. I remember not that long ago, I had a very good, I think it was like eight days. Mm -hmm. Then I had one really bad day and I got really hard on myself. And I had to remember it's not linear. And one mm -hmm. bad day doesn't mean I regressed, doesn't mean I failed. And it's something so important to remember because to your point, I always want to know why. 
I always like want to dig to like the root cause sometimes to my detriment where during that day, I'm like, why did I regress? Why did I had eight, eight great days? Why am I doing so bad? And when I finally went my, with my therapist, she was like, because you're human. You had one bad day. That doesn't mean you regressed. I'm like, this is why I pay you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're worth the money. <laughs> this is why I am broke. <laughs> so um, I've discussed this with others on the show. I don't know if you can relate, possibly. So if, if, I'm, if I'm off base, let me know. But something I struggle with is perfectionism. Yeah. And my perfectionism can make me very anxious. Is that something mm-hmm. that you may feel like you also struggle with? And if so, how do you manage it? Yeah, I mean, I was a gymnast, so perfection is always the goal. And if you don't achieve it, you're wrong. So it's crazy because um, my best friends, all of which I did gymnastics with, one of them is she's two years older than me. So um, nearing 30 and she did gymnastics at Ohio State. And she tells me all the time how much trauma she has from gymnastics. And it's and we never think about it because it really is a sport that gave us so much. But then we don't think about the bad and the bad really is that like you start thinking less of yourself because you're not hitting perfection or you're not hitting a certain target that someone else, a certain expectation that someone else has set out for you, not even that you've set out for yourself. And so it's definitely something I still, I I know I'm going to struggle with that for the rest of my life. Like I know that I have accepted that that's a little bit of a part of me and I'm still working on it and I'll forever work on it. I think the biggest thing that I, and I'm sure that goes hand in hand with perfectionism for you is, is the, uh, the idea of control and your ability to control perfection or make it happen. Um, and I, for the life of me still to the say, I'm working very hard on letting go of that, of that idea or manifestation, because there are certain things you can control. And I agree that, you know, it's up on, it's up to you to handle those things, but there's a lot that you can't. And you have to be okay with the things that you can't control and and let the cards fall where they may. Um, And I think that's the biggest thing that I've been learning. And also just utilizing those, those, um, the different tools that I've found that when I have those fears of perfectionism and anxiety really flare up, you know, what do I do to make myself uh, kind of work myself out of it? My mom calls it the, her negative mind. My mom's a total yogi, has like her structure. Yeah. But I, I think it's really cool because it, it adds a, such a different level of psychology um, to, I would say, traditional psychology and, and what we do from like a therapy standpoint, because um, there's a lot of spirituality based, not even like necessarily like Christianity or whatever, but it's it's a lot about, you know, a higher being and being centered to the earth. And the and I really believe in all that stuff. And so when she talks about your negative mind, it's you have to recognize that you're going in a what's it called black hole. And, you know, what do you do to stop it? So you just have to find those things that work for you. And I, I know a couple of things that work for me. Um, and, and those I just try to remember when those moments happen. It's funny. I started laughing when you said the word control, because yes, that does, uh, that one hits really close to home. And it's something in every aspect, whether I'm talking to my therapist, talking to people very close in my life, when they even start to say, are you just trying to control it too much? I'm like, oh, here we go again. And it's what's really funny. And I now have so much appreciation for this as an adult. um, Now that I'm 30, when I was younger, Mm -hmm. my dad always um, would remind me of the serenity prayer. Yeah. And I never understood it growing up, but he would always like, I remember one time he came back from the Philippines with a gift of like a serenity prayer bracelet. And he kept trying to tell me like this, this prayer is important for you to remember. And 
now as I'm older, I'm realizing it's because I think he saw that me as a little kid that I always wanted to control things a certain way and to learn to let go of what I can't control. And I think about that a lot in my adult life and I haven't even told him that. So when he listens, (laughs) he'll now know that I see what you were trying to do as when uh, I was a kid, because yeah, letting go of control has so much to do with my anxiety, so much to do with perfectionism, so much to do with really any type of mental health stigma people are working with because you want it a certain way. And sometimes I have to remind myself that in my growth also that I can't control how I grow. (laughs) I just grow the way I do. And I, it's funny you say that because like I've even like uh, to recently, I found those issues I have with control now affecting my relationships with people in a negative way. And so I think that happened, I would say, like during the pandemic. And I think that was one of the big things when I realized I need to be in therapy. Like there's some, you know, I can't be expecting people to 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 act the way I expect them to. Like it's and it's hard. It's really difficult in friendships and relationships, even with your family. And so that's really one of the hardest things to let go of, not only the control of yourself, but of the people around you and and, and knowing that they're all living and they're on their own paths, regardless of if you agree with it or not. It's not your position to it's it's your position to be there for them and through through that situation. So it's definitely been a journey. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm the same way. I think that might be what also got me in there was the wanting to uh to control how other people live their lives yeah Um, exactly (laughs) so speaking of which coming back to what you mentioned earlier as far as human relationships gonna put you on the spot a little bit what is the coolest thing you learned in your research when it came to whether it's familial romantic platonic Mm -hmm. relationships I'm trying to remember. It's been it's been six or seven years now. <laughs> no, the brain doesn't work as much as 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 well as I'd I'd hoped. Um, I think one of the coolest things I learned in the social relationships um, section is how much we are influenced by others in our decision making, um, and it's wild because. We live it on a day to day basis. We work in social media where we literally influence the masses on, you know, what you should follow, what players you should watch or, you know, what to buy and, and who's the next up. And so mm-hmm. seeing it on like, I would say like the the granular level, it all connects dots to me. So a lot of what I did was. Um, it really was more like running the study, including having participants come in, sit down at a computer, take, it's almost like a quiz, um, but very strategically built out quiz that will really test their level of dependency or what they, um, what motivates them in their decision-making. And everything is, is about the fear of being the standalone or being the standout or not being, and, and, and wanting to be assimilated to the group. And, and it's like, we read about these things, but then when you see it in action, it's really insane to just watch someone's brain make a different decision than you know they would have probably made because of someone else's decision. Um, so I thought that was pretty wild because it, it really does, like, I would say, put into perspective how how impactful, like, the masses of influence is. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm going to have to, uh, you're going to have to send me some good, like, psychology recommendations. <laughs> and I'm going to go down a rabbit hole of learning about uh, societal relationships. Yeah, and- it's pretty wild. <laughs> I'm reading a book right now. I have it up there. It's called Anxious. It's really about understanding the core of your anxiety. Um, and I think that's really helped me because, I, like I mentioned, it's I love knowing, like, and understanding something. I think that's part of the reason I wanted to do medicine in the first place. It's just I, I wanted to know something so well. But I think it played into my need for 
control. I wanted to know it so well that I could control it. But that's, again, knowing something doesn't mean you can control it. So it's kind of yes. this full circle. Of yes, things. exactly. Comes back around. Exactly. There's, um, there's an opportunity to create a little bit of space between wanting to know and wanting to control. Yes. But for it sounds like for people like you and I, we want to do both. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, so last question for you that I ask everyone on the show is what is a cause or a passion or something that you believe strongly in that you want amplified? Yeah, I mean, I, I work in it. I, I think I have such a passion towards equality in women's sports. I mean, I, I will designate women's sports because it's what I specifically work in, but I, I believe in it for all causes. Um, when it's in the boardroom, when it's in representation at any position or any level, um, I think it's something that I weirdly like didn't recognize how much of a feminist I was growing up. But then I realized I grew up with two single mothers or my, my mom was a single mother, my grandmother, you know, I th three strong women around me all the time. And, and, um, there was always a sense of like, oh, well, especially in Florida, you know, you're going to get married and your husband's going to take care of you. And I think I despise that mentality so much because I just didn't grow up with it. I had such a strong, you know, female characters in my life. And so I just believe in really breaking those, those, uh, societal norms that I would say our country has laid out for us or society has laid out for us in, in the past, you know, three or 400 centuries. Um, and so I think that's something that I'm really, really passionate about is just fighting for equality. And not only that, but just like making sure that women and young girls believe that there is more than just, you know, getting married and doing, and if that's your choice, that's your choice. And I'm very happy for you, but I, I want young girls to believe that there is something else for them out there that they can help it change and impact the world in whatever way they wish and really utilizing or knowing and utilizing their power. That's a big part of it as well. So that's definitely something I'm very passionate about. I love that. And the work <laughs> you're doing at W Slam is definitely making a difference. Appreciate you. Appreciate that big time. Hey, there's more to come and just, you know, trying to grow and make it bigger and better every year. Well, we can't wait to see. And thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. I think what you're doing is incredible here. These conversations about around mental health need to be um, happening more often and less stigmatized because like everyone knows, um, we don't prioritize our mental health when it's really honestly just as important, if not more than our physical health, because um, it impacts it, it is, you know, if you're mentally not there, you're physically not going to be there. So um, these conversations are really helpful to so many. So thank you for what you're doing and having the, these types of podcasts that people can listen to anywhere. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for listening. All episodes can be found on Apple, Spotify, or any preferred podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Meg Reyes underscore, and you can find Camille on Twitter at Camille Buxeda. Don't forget to rate and review, subscribe, tell your friends, share on your IG story, tweet to the world, all that good stuff. Amplified is a Blue Wire production. Shout out to the wonderful women who helped make this happen. Production and editing were done by Laura Stickles and visuals were created by Alyssa Claren.